0: Hey, I am so glad that you're joining me in the honest conversations about all things family. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor and a mom. Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. This is gonna be a place for us to be real about the mess of parenting. Um, It's a place for you to feel validated and to find some self-compassion and some hope for the road ahead. Let's stand in the mud together because personally, I think that is the absolute best place to start. Welcome to the third episode in my series on Anxiety, the Unwanted Houseguest. In the first few episodes, we primarily honed in on how our kids, big and small, experience anxiety and what we can do to support them. But today's focus is a bit different. I want to talk with you about the spillover of anxiety and parent burnout. This can happen if you have chronically anxious kids who you've really had to become attuned to, where your child's anxiety gives rise to your own. And likewise, if you as a parent struggle with anxiety on a regular basis, it can spill over onto your kids. And right off the bat, I want to say that while I'm going to be super honest about how this interaction works between people, this space is safe compassionate and very forgiving for all you caregivers out there who start to feel any sense of guilt or shame around how your own anxiety might be negatively affecting the very people that you pour your heart and soul into loving and protecting. This episode is not about saying that you failed. It's about asking you to be brave enough to look at the feeling you already have about it in the eye. Own it and honor what you want to be for you and for your kids. Anxiety is bossy and it's a thief. And if you're going to find a way to take back the wheel, you are going to have to address it head on and actively put it in the back seat of your ride, or frankly, push it out the vehicle and drive off. We're going to address when anxiety spillover is from adults to kids a little later, but first let's talk about when your kid's anxiety infects you. I want to start off with a story. It may or may not be about my own experience. Yeah, okay. It's about my own experience. Um, And I'm going to preempt this with a bit of a sidebar, and then I'll come back to my story. Um, In my household, we talk a lot about the concept of consent, which is obviously something that applies way more to life than just sexual boundaries. And because we started using the word consent when they were really little, my oldest heard me say... (laughs) Croissant and it has stuck. So, even though they're now 10 and 13, we still talk about consent as though it's croissant. Um, it was her favorite food at the time. To this day, we will ask our kids for our kids' croissant to share their stories about experiences in their lives. So, it's important for me to let you know that I have their permission throughout this podcast to share the details that I'm choosing to share. Um, that include their life experience. Okay. So back to my story before my youngest was officially diagnosed with ADHD a few years ago, her constant risky behavior, night terrors, um, easily triggered meltdowns, her rage and difficulties with, you know, making any kind of transition from one thing to another, exhausted me bone dead. Like face plant on the floor, bone dead. I was so depleted because she didn't have the ability to self-regulate or take head knowledge, which she so clearly had, she's really bright, and put it into practice to insight that she needed to keep herself safe. So if you're curious what that looks like, I'm talking about headlong bolting into heavy traffic, unbuckling her own five-point car seat harness and trying to jump out the window when she was a year and a half. Yes, we quickly learned that we needed to duct tape her straps together every trip and employ both the door and the child safe window locks. But honestly, she was only two years old. Not the kind of baby proofing parenting books advise you about for a kid that age. Um, we honestly worried that if we let our guard down for less than a minute, she might wind up dead. No joke. It didn't help that she was running at nine months and that she was the size of some five-year-olds when she was two. There was no whisking her away under my arm to remove her from a store. If she wasn't ready to leave, I was not getting her out of there without somebody calling the cops on me. It looked like I was kidnapping her. Plus, my children are black and I'm white. So, you know, there's that layer too. People questioned all the time whether or not I was her mother. Friends and family took a step back when they saw her spin like a tornado because she was fierce. We had two experienced childcare workers hired to care just for her in our home so I could go to work part time and grab some sanity. Um, And she had a preschool teacher who all quit their jobs because they did not have the stamina to keep up with her. They could not make her undergo a diaper change. Needless to say, we had little to no actual support. It shrunk our world to us. And every parenting strategy in the book was either ineffective or did the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Yes, I had close friends who empathized. They checked in with me daily, routinely expressed shock and awe for what we were living through and doing our best to manage. But no one felt really brave enough to step up and offer to watch her so that we could take a break. And for five years, I couldn't take her out to a grocery store, to a swimming pool. I had to wait until she was sleeping, sneak out of the house before her first night terror that predictably happened exactly three hours after she had fallen asleep every night. We were totally sleep deprived and I was still working part-time um, at the time in the also in the helping profession but um, my job at the time was to wade through hours and hours of worth of reading material on horrific details of harm done to children um, and and at times the death of children and had to write reports about these things with little to no agency of actually making anything change in the system to support family. and i also had an older traumatized child who needed attention because she witnessed intensely scary meltdowns of her sister that involved i don't know 5 6 hours at a time in between I filled out assessment forms. I ran her to appointments trying to get help. We worked the system as best I could. This is a system I worked for, so I knew the ins and outs of it. And I still couldn't get us what we needed. And notice I have not mentioned any of the basic activities you do in family life, like cooking and cleaning. I'm sharing this because while she didn't exactly have an anxiety disorder, her neurodevelopment differences required me to be on and hypervigilant in an extreme way for seven and a half years. No break, none. We once tried to go on a date night, but two hours in, the person called us with two wailing kids in the background saying we needed to come home fast, and that person never offered to watch them again. And by the way, it took us 24 hours to get our kids back to baseline, which just doesn't make the two-hour attempt at private time worth it. So lesson learned. School became the closest thing to getting a break, but even then, my work hours matched her school hours, making it impossible to catch my breath. I went from caregiving for one to caregiving for another, and all the while, waiting for the bottom to drop out. That rattled my nervous system there's no doubt about it and yet I couldn't fall apart I was needed I'm mom I held it together until I really just couldn't anymore and sobbing in my car one day coming home from a work conference I called my husband and I said I can't do it anymore something has to change something big is going to change because we need it to to survive a huge part of that was taking a leap of faith and changing directions in my career so I could find meaning, a sense of agency, and competence in at least part of my days. I knew there was no magic fix on how things were going to be at home, so I started taking care of myself in a way that I could. After I made a couple of key changes in my life to make room for something other than trying to keep my kid alive, I called my own therapist. I was so worried that my nervous system would never fully recover from that chronic state that I had to be in. I had some serious emotional buildup that needed processing so that I didn't stay stuck. I learned that I couldn't do it all and I didn't need to. I was burnt out. We are thankfully in a very different place right now, which you'll also hear great stories about as we journey together. But what I want to acknowledge is the parent burnout for all primary caregivers, and especially for those who have kids with extreme anxiety or special needs or visible or invisible ones. My own nervous system needed intensive care and so does yours. We need it to stay present for ourselves and for our kids. My story is a window into the real effects of parent burnout. When storms are constant and when they've passed, we need to take care of ourselves. When other people caught a glimpse of my overwhelm, they knew I needed a break. So the version of self care that they suggested were things like, oh, You poor thing, you need a day at the spa. Or you and your husband should take a weekend away. You can't keep going like this. Those comments were delivered with such care. But I tell you, it felt like a punch in the gut. Because that version of self-care wasn't just so desperately needed, but it was also completely unavailable to us. No one would watch our kids for a few hours. How on earth we were going to disappear for a whole weekend? And if this sounds familiar to you, I feel you. For kids who are clingy and have separation anxiety, this is your reality. You can barely drop them off at school, if that. It forced me to redefine what self-care was going to look like. And what I learned during that phase of falling apart and staying up late, (laughs) reading books about vicarious trauma and burnout was that the escape was not the solution. What I needed was the ability to reground myself in the midst of it over and over and over. I had to find ways that worked for me in my situation where I could stay present, kind to myself and not feel like it was selfish to attend to my own frayed nerves. Because isn't that the plague of parents that were never enough? We cannot possibly offer up too much for our kids. We never reach an end point. That their needs come ahead of ours, if we're good parents. That's a farce. Our kids need us to have a sense of self, that we are allowed to take space for ourselves, that we are individuals that still require ongoing nurturing. Instead of feeling resentful that I couldn't be pampered for an afternoon, I started practicing small things, mindfulness, breathing deeply and intentionally every hour and sometimes every minute, and saying things to myself that I say to my friends and my clients who are struggling, that what I'm dealing with is the impossible at times, and there isn't always a fix. That I cannot prevent every storm and it's not my job to climb inside of my kid's brain and reorganize it. I can't speed up their development. And that even though I'm a counselor with years of training around managing mental health challenges, big emotions, and difficult behaviors, when my kid's ADHD takes over, I'm not failing her because I don't have a cure or an answer. I'm not failing as a counselor or a mom. And it took me a while to come to grips with that. So what did I do? I started doing things like eating differently, being kind to my body, moving more, reading what I wanted to read, not feeling obligated to that stack of parenting texts that was sitting on my desk because I knew somehow there was some secret that would fix it all in there. I brought myself back to the basics of what I felt good about as a parent. I started painting. I started talking to my kids differently. Not as much, but better. And I focused on that as the new bar, not measuring my worth about how my child was behaving or doing in life. I started taking her anger and doubling down as struggles only she was having that I was present for, that it wasn't aimed at me or a reflection of her attachment to me or lack thereof. I started letting myself drink tea when it was hot. And I put a daily hour of quiet time where we all went into our respective rooms with a snack and some books and we did not come out till the alarm went off. And sometimes I didn't read during that time at all. I released tension and exhaustion in the form of sobbing, texting a friend for reassurance. I started thinking about what I eventually hoped my daughter would do to manage her own emotional dysregulation, and I simply committed, I'm gonna do those things in front of her. My goal was not to control her, it was to ground myself. I would breathe deep with eyes closed and notice the floor beneath me. I would paint at the kitchen table while they watched a show nearby, and I would order takeout. It's the reason that I decided to create online courses for families and the first one I was going to put together was on co-regulation strategies because honestly I wish somebody had laid this out for me a decade earlier than I figured it out and I know a whole lot of struggling parents who are needing these same strategies to both survive this phase of parenting and see eventually the effective outcomes for their kids. It's slow And despite the professionals that she saw, no one provided me with these tools. They all threw up their hands in the end and said, we're really not sure what else to say or do here. You're doing all the things. You've read all the books. We see you doing the strategies. If one parent can find these strategies helpful years before I was able to, I will be relieved that someone's grief was minimized. So for all you parents with kids who are neurodiverse, who struggle with anxiety, have needs that are high demand, pay attention to your own needs. Permit yourself to change your expectations of both you and your kids. Work on your own regulation and grounding toolkit and connect with other parents who get the struggle. Breathe, find ways to be present. And be kind to yourselves. And here's what I want to say when you as a parent have high levels of anxiety yourself, and you worry about the impact that that has on your kids. Number one, please talk about it. Just start with your safest person. It might be your partner. It might be a friend. It might be your journal, but let it out. You can work your way out from here. Don't isolate. This experience isn't just happening to you and you do not need to be ashamed of it. The second you acknowledge it out loud, it loses some of its power on you. Number two, talk to your doctor or counselor about it. Just explore options for treatment. No one can force you to do anything, but until you have all the information and the support that's available, you won't know what to choose. And you won't feel like you have the power to do anything with it. Number three, your kids smell your anxiety. And that's not a bad thing. If you think you're hiding it well from them, think again. If you have good connections with your kids, they are bound to feel your inner frayed wires. We just don't want them to feel responsible for taking care of you. So you know what? Just acknowledge it, claim it, and take care of yourself. It's not your kid's role to navigate their lives around your anxiety, but that's what starts to happen when you keep it to yourself and they do guesswork around what you need. If you put it out there and talk about it with them, it removes shame and lets you be honest and it erodes the stigma. Number four, build your own grounding toolkit. Play around with things to see what works for you. Not everyone enjoys taking a bath or drinking hot coffee, but find your footing strategies and commit to practicing them. It takes rehearsal and permission. Write a list of kind things to say to yourself and post them somewhere to remind you. Number five, do not underestimate the power of just being in your breath. Deep breathe, often. I want to end today with a challenge for all you parents with kids who are struggling. Please pay attention to yourself this week, just in one way, shape, or form. Notice your needs and dare to attend to at least one of them. Seriously, your whole family will benefit. I will see you next week when we're going to talk about the line between accommodating and enabling when it comes to parenting our anxious kids. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. I'm so thankful for your ear. I feel honored to be standing in the trenches with you. In the age and culture of things like glossy Instagram posts, mom shaming and harmful stereotypes, we need to really bravely shed our protective layers and just own our true experiences of parenting, war wounds and all. Really, how else are we gonna get to realize that we are not the only ones experiencing the messiness of it all? As parents, we need to support one another. We need to share in the laughter, but also in the lamenting, and find ways to hold one another up. And that is my sincere goal for this podcast and for the broader mental health work that I do. Don't forget to take a look at today's show notes where you'll find related resources and my letter from the trenches. If you're wanting to know a bit more about my work, please subscribe to my living room learning page at my.thrive-life.ca forward slash LRL series. I'll be able to keep you posted on new tools and resources that I put out in the world, and it'll allow us to get to know one another a bit better. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook where I share links to my projects offer up free tools to support you and your family, and I keep things real from a parenting perspective. Standing shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in the mud, let's talk again next week.